What's up, my podcast listeners and everyone else on the internet that stumbled upon my shit? Uh, I am your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I'm excited about this episode because I am bringing two episodes that I've done in the past on the morning routine, aka the cars routine, aka controlled articular rotations. And by the way, my wife's beside me totally making fun of me with my intro. (laughs) But um, I wanted to put this together into one episode because when I started this about a year ago, um, I ended up going into like 44 minutes and I got through half of the morning routine and I was like, holy crap, I need to do another episode. And it just makes sense to put them together so you have it in one file, one full episode that you can watch from start to finish and fully understand the benefits of the car's routine. And I feel, especially now, a lot of people kind of overlook the whole concept of joint health and joint integrity and everything that we do in the gym and everything that we do in daily life requires our joints to have at least some sort of foundation and you know especially in our day and age where we're sitting a lot more and having zoom calls back to back is a norm now just makes things like our shoulders our elbows our wrists our neck basically every single joint that you use on a daily basis is probably not, you know, in the greatest shape as it should be. And then we try to go to the gym and improve our health and we do stuff like deadlifts and walking lunges and plyometric jumping exercises and then you wonder why your low back hurts. And it all starts with having a foundation, just like anything. If we're gonna build a house, you need to build it on a solid foundation. If you don't, then the whole thing's gonna collapse and if you have any kind of weird weather thing like we did here in BC, then your whole house is gonna go to shit, just like your body. So let's not do that. And without me rambling on for another 30 minutes about shitty joints and shitty exercises, here is the compilation episode of The Morning Routine, AKA The Cars Routine. Here we go. What's up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and we're kind of doing a whiteboard session without the whiteboard, but um, today's episode is definitely going to be uh, a little different, but I am super excited um, to get this one going because we're going to go over the entire car's routine and um, there's going to be a lot of stuff where I'm going to demonstrate and you're going to have to actually watch it. So for all my listeners, I highly recommend you hit the show notes and click the link that'll take you to my YouTube to see this video. But regardless, if you're, you know, in habit of listening to my show, I'm going to be very descriptive. You're still going to get some benefit from it because as I go through every single joint, we are going to describe the importance of it, how it influences movement and all that fun stuff. So let's get this started so if you watched the last episode i'm going to adjust my camera every time we go through this thing um we talked about cars kin stretch pails and rails and the big thing that a lot of people need to understand is to in order to perform a certain exercise there's certain things your joints should be able to do. If those joints don't function like they're supposed to, then most likely they're gonna compensate in some shape or form. And, you know, the exercise that you're doing is gonna end up 
fucking your shit up. So an example of that is, say the barbell deadlift. You know, everyone loves to deadlift, but if you don't have adequate hip flexion, for example, or just adequate hip mobility, right? Me going into a hip hinge pattern and getting to a point where my hips go, you don't have enough, you know, hip flexion to do this in that hinge-like position, then I'm going to compensate somewhere else to give you that hip flexion. And it's usually a break in the spine in order to get low to deadlift the barbell off the ground. So those repetitive patterns, over time, we get injury. So the big thing today, what we're gonna go over is every single joint, and how to perform the car and what it kind of influences when it comes to exercise and why it's important for you to constantly make sure that your joints function the way your joints should. So this is going to be the CARS morning routine and again CARS is an abbreviation of controlled articular rotations and a little you know refresher on what we went over last time is CARS allows you to practice within your workspace. So again, the workspace is like, say I'm doing my shoulder car, and this range here is what my workspace is. And within my joint capsule itself, as I keep doing this, I'm feeding it nutrients over and over and over again, and lathering it with synovial fluid to make it move nice and smooth, right? So the first thing we're gonna do is start with neck cars. So the neck is one of those things that a lot of people, you know, deal with some sort of issue, either pulling their neck or they have some posture related thing. They've been in a car accident, whiplash. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with the neck. And as a coach, you know, I don't really touch that with a 10 foot pole, but I know that if the neck does not move the way it should, then it causes more issues. Because a lot of times when people hurt their neck, they're like, I don't wanna move it. I'm gonna move my whole torso and keep this as is. And then down the line, they end up, you know, making it a lot worse than it is. So the big thing that I want for people to understand when you're moving the neck, pain is a big no. If there's pain in your neck while moving through the neck car, just like move on to the next thing and go see physio, chiro, whoever to address what's going on because the neck is kind of the gatekeeper to a lot of things that we do. And if we neglect it, then the rest of our body is just kind of fucked. So if you think about the neck, if you are doing a T-Rex row in that descent position, you need enough neck strength and stability to actually hold that, right? If you are doing a deadlift like before, that neck needs to be packed back to create a, more of a joint centration um, like effect to stack all the joints. If your head's down here, if your head's up here, then you're not gonna really get the benefit of that joint. So the neck car, how it looks, really simply hands out to the side. And what we're gonna do is you're gonna look down as far as possible with the head. And then from here, you're gonna turn to the left or right. And then you're gonna look over to your left shoulder, start tilting the head up towards the ceiling. Your eyes should be at the ceiling right now. You're making your way over to the other side and mimicking that same little rotation you did. 
and come back down to where you started, and then you're going to reverse it the same way you came, nice and slow. And you want to ensure you're breathing the entire time. So essentially, I just drew an entire circle with my neck. And the big thing is when I have my hands out to my side in the anatomical position, when I get my clients or patients doing this, this also allows me to kind of self, not self-assess, but assess their movement. Because a lot of times when people do their neck cards and they, you know, they go to the left or right, and I think a lot of people, if they turn their head to one side, they're going to feel that tightness running down their scalenes into their trap and shoulder, right? And a lot of times when people do that, their whole torso is going to move, right? And then if you think about it, if my neck can't rotate in a downward to the left kind of position, and that allows, well, requires my entire shoulder and my T-spine to move with it, now if I'm doing an exercise that requires rotation, I already know that that rotation is not going to be true rotation through the thoracic spine and finishing off at the hips. It's going to be a combination of like my neck preventing me to do enough rotation. And I'm going to find that rotation somewhere else. And it's usually the lumbar spine. Now with the neck, the big thing to remember again, no pain. If there is pain, like no pain is subjective. Say it's like, oh yeah, it's kind of tight. It's kind of painful. Like I was saying before, you're drawing a circle, and as you're going through the neck car, there might be some sort of tightness or pain. You just back off and you create a little like buffer zone. So maybe my neck car is more so like this, just a smaller circle all the way around and back, and then you're good, right? So it all kind of depends on the person. But the other thing too, people dealing with like vertigo, dizzy spells, car accident, like previous car accidents, things like that, moving your neck through those ranges might trigger a response, which you don't want. A lot of times um, when I work with a patient or a client that comes from that background, my first step is to chat with their physiotherapist or chiropractor they're working with and ask them, what can I do with their neck? Can they go through flexion and extension and left rotation, right rotation, and any kind of variances with that? Most of the time, they're gonna be like, you know what, they're good with flexion, they're good with rotation both ways, but don't go into extension. Because most of these neck people, they have postures like this. And now if I crank on their neck this way, it's not one, not gonna feel good, and two, they might actually cut off some sort of circulation or blood flow to the brain and they could end up getting lightheaded, pass out, whatever it is. And that's where I don't want that to happen. The other thing too, is when I get people doing neck cars and maybe they had a previous history of stuff like that. And, you know, they're good right now, but what I also utilize a neck car is to see if I get any kind of information from their eyes. So a lot of times when people are dealing with neck stuff, they tend to close their eyes when they do their neck car. And I wanna see their eyes open to see if their pupils dilate, their eyes do a weird like back and forth or anything like that, because that gives me information of what's happening on a vestibular or sensory um, level, which then I could go like, hey, you should probably go again back to your physio chiro to kind of ensure that we're all good. Because the eyes tell you a lot of what's going on in side the brain and what's going on 
with the client's kind of like sense of surrounding and things like that. So the last thing you want is to trigger some sort of waterfall-like thing where someone feels lightheaded and they eventually pass out, which we don't want. But honestly, the um, chances of that for the regular person is quite low unless they have a history of it. So regardless, I always play it safe with people's necks. And I also tell people when you do cars, and I'm like totally rambling on this topic and it's like already 11 minutes in, but that's okay. Um, it's a self-assessment to see how you feel. And it's a way to kind of ground yourself to see where you're at with your body. So if I get someone doing neck cars, everything just fucking hurts. Some exercises are probably not gonna feel that great on that day. So then now I have an idea of like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna move on because I could probably talk on, on the neck and the that entire joint itself for a long time. Actually, I wanna add one more thing. Going back to that example of someone having this forward poke head, poke neck posture, the last thing I want people to experience is that loss, like that lightheadedness, because then that triggers that kind of like familiar response that, oh, exercise is a bad thing because every time I do this, it makes me feel lightheaded and I wanna pass out. So a lot of times with those people with that forward head posture, getting to lay down on their back to do an exercise it's gonna make them feel like this. And so I've had clients where their posture is so poor that their head can't actually lay onto a flat surface, so I have to elevate it. So say I'm doing a bench press and I have someone like that, well, one, I would not be getting them to do a bench press because their posture is shit, but anyway, let's just say they're doing bench press. Their head can't physically touch the bench, so now you're cutting off the circulation with all the blood rushing to the head, and as they get up, they can feel lightheaded, faint, whatever it is. But a simple solution is actually just placing like a yoga block on the back of their head. So now they have some support and they don't have to like just crank and create a hinge point at, you know, C2, C3, whatever it is. Um, but a simple um, change as well is just if you have someone doing bench press, I don't know why you would with someone like that, but um, placing the bench on an incline so now they don't have to like reach for it, right? And like, even if it wasn't bench press, it's stuff like, oh, I want to do glute bridges, I want to do dead bugs, stuff like that, more stuff that would actually benefit them, then you would want to still elevate their head. But anyway, we're going to move on to our scapulas. So we're going to do scapular cars next. The big thing with scapular cars is that people have poor, poor, poor control over them, and they cheat this all the freaking time. So if you, again, go back to that example of Steve, the account that I always like to use, everyone tends to be here in this forward round position, and they have no idea how to retract or elevate or depress their shoulder blades without some sort of compensation. So essentially what the scapular car is, get hands by your side. You're gonna think of sliding your hands into your front pockets while bringing your shoulders in front as far as possible, like you're trying to like round your back as much as possible. In this big rounded position with your hands in your front pockets, with your shoulders pointing forward, you're driving your shoulders up towards your ears as high as possible. From this position, what you're gonna think of is now squeezing your shoulder blades together in that elevated position and sliding your hands by your side until you get all the way behind into your 
back pockets and now I'm going to slide them down into my back pockets and I'm going to reverse it. So essentially it's a big, 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 big shoulder roll going back and forward and I'm going to continue doing these repetitions so you see how it looks going back and forward. How people screw this up because like I said before, people have terrible control on how to retract their shoulder blades, elevate and depress. They're really good over here to shrug and kind of go down, but not really. So what I see a lot of times is as people come forward, they're really good. And as they elevate, they can't elevate all the way because they just don't have the control that are necessary like muscular endurance and strength to get to that position. So what happens is they start bending their elbows to mimic height. And remember, like I've said so many times on this podcast that our bodies are so good at cheating movement. And this is a great example of how that happens. So they come up, they get to a certain position. They're like, oh, I don't have any more height. And I was supposed to drive my shoulders to my ears. And now my elbows are going to bend and now I'm going to start retracting back and those elbows are still up. And this is the kind of weird thing that they end up doing is they start bending those elbows to kind of mimic height and they have zero amount of it. So with those shoulder blades that don't move properly, think about it for that for a second. Every single pushing or pulling exercise or an exercise where you have to stabilize is now being affected. If I see, like, literally in the clinic, anytime I give someone scapular cars for the rehab, none of them can do it properly. And as they do it, when they get back here, it's a lot of, like, shakiness and, like, awkwardness. Like, they don't know how to move their shoulder blades through different planes of motion. So if I already know that, they have zero control over anything other than like going back into this forward rounded position that everyone stays in, then things like an overhead press is definitely not working the way it should. A bench press or any kind of pressing motion is not working the way it should. Any kind of pulling motion is not working the way it should. And that's why you'll see so many people when they say do like a dumbbell uh, row. So I'll say my hands on the bench, my knees on the bench, and I'm rowing. A lot of times when they row, because they don't have full control of that scapula, they don't know how to stabilize the motion, they end up getting to this pulling motion where they kind of like pitch the shoulder forward and their whole shoulder blade kind of wings, and they think they're pulling to their rib cage with their um, scapula depressed down and kind of retracted a little bit, but it's more so their whole shoulder kind of spills forward and their whole entire scapula kind of just wings up and they end up doing this like weird forward dump with their scap and their trap and then their trap becomes hyperactive and it becomes so super tight right so those are a lot of common exercises that people do all the time and it comes down to like can your shoulder blade do all these things with any other kind of compensation so uh, if you think about it if we have someone that can't move their neck properly, and a lot of those muscles kind of connect down into that shoulder blade. Now, if these two joints don't work, that um, scapula and that neck, fuck, there's a lot of exercises you can't do properly. Now, the second thing is being able to stabilize the scapula. So, something like the deadlift, the back squat, those 
big lifts that require a lot of muscle activity in order to perform the exercise adequately. If I have to grab a barbell and learn how to set my scaps where they're supposed to sit in an exercise like that, it's probably not going to happen. So what's going to happen is going this is going to break. My head is going to try to compensate for it. So my neck's going to crank up and I'm just going to end up going through a movement behavior. That's not the best approach when it comes to, um, that movement, that exercise, right? So you can already see that we've already hit two things that influence so much already. And this is where I get like, I guess heated in a sense that a lot of people do like exercises that they're not supposed to be doing. And even though they are doing it, they feel like they're doing it, they're sweating, they're like, oh yeah, I'm totally, like you can only go so far before you hit a plateau and you realize my deadlift number's not going up, I can only dumbbell row this much, I can't press more, like, Imagine if you had such a solid foundation, the more weight you stacked on, like, like no problem, right? And that's why you see like an Olympic weightlifter who can like clean and jerk 450 pounds and looks perfect because their joints function very, very, very well. Whereas Joe Blow who sits at a you know desk 10 hours a day, their joints probably don't work that well. So when it comes to exercise, they're kind of like hoping for the best, but let's move on to uh, shoulder cars, um, shoulder cars a lot more complicated than our neck or our scapulas because they have so many movement variances and it can go into so many different positions. So if you think of the shoulder joint, the glenohumeral joint, it can move in so many different planes out here in front and behind, all right? So a shoulder car, your hand is gonna be in this kind of karate chop position. Fingers are glued together and thumb is up like you're trying to hitchhike. You start by your side. You're gonna come across the body, kind of midline, and as you get to your half uh, position, that's when you're gonna start coming across the body, kind of like you're gonna about to do a wave. And you're gonna come up as high as possible. And as I'm coming across, like I am thinking about my glenohumeral joint because it's a ball and socket joint, right? So socket, ball. It can do axial rotations back and forth. And I need to be able to do that as I do my shoulder car movement. And it's not just like, I'm doing a big circle like this. I'm trying to, as I'm doing that full circle, to constantly go through an axial rotation like this with my um, ball and socket joint of my glenohumeral joint. So going back, we're coming across. And then you can see like, as I turn, I'm already doing an axial rotation with my hand. I'm coming across the body. I'm coming up and I'm already still, I'm still rotating. I'm constantly rotating this wrist, elbow and shoulder. And as I come back to my side here, I'm trying to rotate down into internal rotation, rotate, 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 rotate. And now my hand is in the opposite direction. From here, I'm gonna come back the same way I came. I'm rotating, 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 rotating. And I'm coming back to the front and across the body and down. So that was a lot of stuff that just happened. My shoulders capable of adduction, so I'm coming across. I'm going into flexion. I'm also going into abduction. I'm going to internal rotation. I'm going down into extension, back here, back through extension, and going through all these different planes of motion across my entire body, right? So that shoulder joint can do a lot. Again, when I show this to patients and clients, in their minds, <laughs> 
they think they can do exactly what my shoulder can. Even like, even I've had these situations where people come in with like a torn rotator cuff, they see me do that and they're like, in their head, they're like, I can do that. And they try to do it, they get through pain or they realize they compensate a lot. Common mistakes that I see people do one, they, you know, they start off good, they're coming across the body, and they realize that, you know, their shoulder's not the best. Well, they don't realize, I realize, that their shoulder's not the best. So in order to compensate for more adduction, they twist their torso, they come across the body, the elbow starts bending, and then they try to get into, you know, as much flexion as possible, and end up arching, and then as they start rotating around, their whole like trap kind of pops open and they kind of lean away from it and then come down and then they realize that oh they need to come back they come back more breaking at the elbow rotating and this whole kind of shoulder kind of clunks down and they come forward and back and it's honestly a mess so there's a lot of stuff that has to happen so in order for that shoulder to move freely and there's a lot of stuff that influences it Number one is our neck, like we just did earlier. Number two is our shoulder blade, being able to move freely. And number three is our T-spine mobility up here. And that's a big, big, big one that influences what our shoulder can do, right? So if you think about it, a lot of stuff that we do is anterior loaded onto the shoulder because we're also here. We're constantly pressing, we're constantly pulling, we're doing all this stuff out here, but back here, no, nothing really, we never train back here. So a lot of times this stuff kind of feels awkward and the arm kind of just falls in, right? So when we train these ranges back here with our arm without any kind of compensation, we're doing our shoulder a lot of good, right? When I see a shitty shoulder through um, shoulder cars, I already know that pressing is going to be terrible for this person. Pulling overhead, terrible for this person. Doing endless amounts of bench press, terrible for this person. Doing a back squat in order that, that requires, again, your shoulder blades to be able to retract and pack down and the glenohumeral joint to set down into a position where you can actually grab the bar and pull it in. That's why you see a lot of times when people get into a back squat position, their elbows are flared out like this because they don't have the mobility up top to get their shoulders in a better position, right? That first initial shoulder car that I see tells me so much about the person and what exercises they need to avoid and which ones they um, need to kind of practice, right? Um, with that shoulder, we're gonna kind of bounce back and forth with the T-spine um, car because those two go hand in hand. So a lot of times, um, actually, you know what, I'm gonna go back to the shoulder car because there's a couple other things. A lot of times I give the shoulder car to people because their shoulder is effed and they have pain. So the big thing that I see a lot is people try to imitate me, it doesn't go well. So I need to create a shoulder car that works to their advantage. So a lot of times, say I'm taking someone through their first shoulder car and I'm like, okay, we're coming across the body and I go stop. Because that's where their first break is, is they realize they can't go any further with their shoulders, they're gonna rotate with their torso. So I'm like, all right, stop. And now come across the body. And then they break again and go stop. 
that's where we're gonna go. Now start coming up towards your face, start rotating, and say, this is where they start feeling pain. I'm like, okay, stop, go two inches down. And now start rotating out, and they're good, they're good, they're good, they're good. They get about to out here, and remember, a lot of times in order to perform a, um, a shoulder car, you need to be able to set this shoulder in a, um, a joint centrated position. And a lot of times people have that forward dumped posture with their uh, shoulders. So when they get into that abduction position, a lot of times they start feeling pain on that front of the shoulder because they're trying to go into this internal rotation coming down and that's gonna trigger a lot of people. So I go, okay, buffer zone, they're gonna go forward. And now they come straight down into that internal rotation to adduction and then that's it. Here's the kicker. Now they have to come back in that same pattern. So say they start coming back and that transition from internal rotation to external rotation can hurt, but say it doesn't, they come back and they follow that same modified position that's pain-free, has no breaks, it has no um, compensations, and they're able to do this freely. But let's say, because this happens a lot to me in clinic, when they're in that internal rotation position, they're halfway through the shoulder car and now they have to come back. They come back and they have to transition from internal rotation to external rotation and that just sometimes just fucks their shit up. So a lot of times we don't even try to go through it. We don't try to get through like a weird kind of buffer zone area. I just tell them to reset. So now they, rather than going back, they just repeat that first section. So I go and reset. And then they go through that for, first portion only until they've built this up so well that then they can come back. So nine out of 10 times when I get someone with that bad of a shoulder and I'm like, okay, what are you doing for exercise? They don't do enough pulling exercises. It's majority all pressing and things like back squatting or mountain climbers on the ground or planks on the ground. And if you think about it, someone has a really, really shitty shoulder, like any position where you're asking the shoulder to stabilize or you're dumping um, weight into your anterior shoulder, you're just feel, feeling the fire. And this is the stuff that people don't understand because like, you know, they exercise because like, oh, I want to lose weight, I want to gain muscle, I want to do this, I want to do that. But you can't add those things that are more calorie burning if your joints itself can't support it, right? They can only do it so much until this stuff starts hurting, right? So shoulder, very, very vulnerable uh, piece of machinery. When people don't spend the time to make it function like a shoulder and like Dr. Andrew Spina has is like a beautiful quote like if your shoulder doesn't act like a shoulder then it can't do shoulder things like that's brilliant like it just makes sense to me right um it's kind of similar to now I'm not going down, down that path never mind my head's going like a mile a minute and man we're already at like 30 minutes so we're gonna do one more I'm gonna make this into a two-parter because like this can go on forever. Um, T-spine mobility. Your thoracic spine, just like your shoulder, influences so freaking much. And a lot of times when this top portion of your spine does not move properly, everything else has to compensate for it and it's usually your lower back and your hips and that shit fucks a lot of people up. So having adequate T-spine mobility 
is huge. And kind of disclaimer, with the T-spine mobility um, drills or just the T-spine cards in general, it's probably one of the hardest things to learn how to do because people have no like idea how to move this without anything else influencing it. And I see this a lot when I teach my kin stretch class, I almost have to break it up into just two different exercises and then combine them together. But for the sake of this video, we are going to put it all together. So T-spine cars, you stand shoulder width apart, doesn't fucking matter. You're going to squeeze your glutes as hard as possible throughout this entire exercise to ensure your lumbar spine is not moving. You're going to cross the arms over the top portion and you kind of basically give yourself a hug. From this position, again, only moving the top portion of your spine, you're going to go into flexion. So you're kind of crunching forward with just the top portion of um, your body. From here, you're going to rotate your torso as far as possible to the right. You're going to extend backwards as much as possible. In this extended posture, you're going to start making your way over to the other side in that extended position. And then you're in that same extended position on the left side. You come down, rotate, and then you're going to come back the same way you came. So it's almost similar, if I had to give you a visual, to if you were trying to open up a pickle jar. The bottom piece stays in place, the top piece you're rotating. And that's all you're trying to do. So where people screw up on here, their T-spines, as I ask them to go into flexion with just the top portion of their spine, they end up thinking like, oh, okay. And they bend their entire spine. They have no, and this is, the moment I see that, I'm like, everything you do when it comes to like moving forward is that you're now adding lumbar flexion. And when it comes, and this is going to be another video, when it comes to lumbar flexion, it tends to fuck people up. We live in a forward flex world, so we're just adding fuel to that dumpster fire of low back pain. But, again, this is gonna be a different video. There is times where you need to train flexion for your lumbar spine in order for it to function like a joint. If you completely stay away from flexion forever, then you're probably gonna make things worse on the other side, but other video, anyway. When I see that, that just means that everyone's going to constantly think of, if I'm going to flex forward, it's also my lumbar spine, and it's just going to make things worse. But anyway, from there, a lot of people don't understand how to rotate right with just their top portion of their T-spine, so they end up rotating with their hips. And then when I ask them to extend, they, again, kind of go with their entire spine, so they end up like just doing this and they're driving their hips forward and they're trying to like kind of navigate around. So they have no clue how to move just this while keeping lumbar spine stable and just eliminating any kind of movement. So now that I know that, when I see that, when people kind of look like this, kind of doing this weird hula hoop kind of motion, then I'm like, okay, anytime they have to rotate with their torso, they're going through their lumbar spine as well. And I could probably make the assumption that their hip mobility sucks because their hips are not going through any kind of compensation pattern to help. So now I'm like, most likely this person had some sort of, you know, low back pain in the past. They might feel low back pain while they're exercising. 
and a lot of rotational exercises. So if you are doing med ball throws into the wall, if you're playing golf, any kind of rotational sport, your lumbar spine is taking up all the grunt force, whereas your thoracic spine is barely doing anything. So if you have a limitation in your thoracic spine, if you think about it, it can rotate 45 degrees. A healthy uh, spine can do that both ways. If it's limited, then the lumbar spine has to take over and our lumbar spine is about only 12 to 13 degrees of left-right rotation before it starts cranking on stuff that will not feel good. So we've covered our neck, our scapulas, our glenohumeral joint, and our T-spine. We still have to do elbows, wrists, hips, knees, ankles, and possibly our toes, which I'm gonna leave for the second video. And then I'm gonna do like a third video of all the cars in one go. And that's gonna be kind of like everyone's homework listening and watching that I challenge every single one of you to do um, every single day. If you do three reps of every single joint, you are, again, influencing movement at the joint the way it's designed. You are adding synovial fluid all around the joint for it to move better. You're giving it nutrients and you're constantly reinforcing to your nervous system that, hey, this joint's supposed to move. Let me move it, let me own it. So I'm gonna end it there filming this to do a t part two of the morning routine uh, controlled articular rotation thing that I started last time. So for all my listeners, I highly recommend you click the show notes, click the link to YouTube, my YouTube channel, which you should subscribe because I've been posting a lot on there. I have a lot of exercises. I've surpassed the you know thousand video mark of like exercise demonstrations, uh, tutorials on exercises, the video podcast, and some other stuff. So highly recommend you check that out. Um, so we're gonna, one, do a small review, what we did last time. Two, we're gonna move on to all the other body parts that we didn't hit. So we need to hit our elbows, our wrists, our hips, our knees, our ankles, and if we have time, the toes, because I'm gonna get into that later. Anyway, all right, so cars. What the fuck are cars? Controlled articular rotations. That's the long name. Essentially, what it means is the entire range of motion your joint is designed to move in. If we don't use it, we lose it. Facts. Um, so, to keep a joint healthy, you have to move the can't talk, articulation through its entirety. If I only use my shoulder for my phone, my laptop, and grabbing a cup out of the cupboard, and I don't move my shoulder in any other plane of motion, then all those other parts of the joint itself is gonna get tight, just not, it's just not gonna be healthy, you know? Um, the more we move our joints, the better the joint itself is going to be because we're surrounding it, lathering, if you can think about literally, literally, literally lathering the entire joint um, are with synovial fluid, nutrients, everything it needs to be a strong, resilient, robust uh, joint for us to move and do all these different things. Um, 
quick side note before I forget. Walt Disney's birthday was yesterday. Shout out to all my Disney fans out there like I am. Um, so, cars is essentially moving our joints through our own workspace where the more we can challenge our workspace, the more um, healthier our joints are gonna be, but also kind of reinforce our nervous system that um, we own that range of motion. So I'm doing a shoulder car with my arm, and the more I do it, the more I will have full control of that motion of my entire glenohumeral joint, but also reinforcing to the nervous system that, hey, I own this movement, don't take it away from me, because our nervous system is one of those things that it's like, hey, you haven't squatted past 90 degrees in a year because you sit at a desk all the, all the time. I'm gonna take that ability away from you because it's super energy sucking. You know, like our nervous system is smart, but sometimes it just fucks us over long term. So that's why we always gotta move. Um, so we're gonna move on to uh, our elbows. So last time we did our neck, last time also we did our scapulas, our shoulders and our T-spine. Now, if you've been practicing those, awesome. If you haven't, start. I'm gonna do a separate video um, showcasing a full maybe like tutorial on how to do the cars routine which I'm gonna need for my book anyway which by the way I'm hoping hoping 2021 around summer should be released um, keep an eye out um, so elbows so the elbow is one of those joints I always call it it's a not a non sexy joint because it doesn't do much if you really think about it other than you know flexion so i'm doing a bicep curl extension and like rotation right that's basically it but if you combine it with your shoulder flexion extension rotation and now think about how different all these different directions our shoulder can go into our elbow can go into all those directions as well right so it's a interesting way to combine two joints together, right? Um, but elbow pain is huge. And funny enough, I am dealing with elbow pain myself right now because you know what? I did something stupid. And this is, this is a great example because people, when they see my ability to move, they just assume that, oh, you never have any pain. Oh, you're never injured. I fucking get injured. So went to the grocery store and it was one of those trips where I'm like, oh yeah, we're just gonna grab like two things and by the time we got out of there, it's like I have like 12 fucking bags with me and you know, here I am with a hurt elbow. So, but I did not injure myself carrying all those bags. It was later on. So here, here's a scenario. I have about seven grocery bags in my right arm and my left arm, I'm holding the biggest bag of flour because it's almost Christmas time and I need to be prepped with a lot of flour so I don't run out. So, bag of flour on my left side, right side, seven bags. But, I did not have my elbow locked out to full extension to hold it like a farmer carry. And funny enough, this is where like sports, sports specific, specific training comes into play. When I do farmer carries, I have my elbows in full extension and gripping tight, like, you know, 70 pounds, 80 pounds, whatever it is, 
never had an issue. But when I've been when I was holding these grocery bags, I had a slight bend in my elbow, so slight flexion while gripping, because like if I had it straight out, it'd just be hitting my leg the entire time when I was walking. So I had to make some room, and I think in that position, I was actually loading my brachial radialis tendon, because right 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 now, even when I'm pushing on it, it does not feel good. It's it's there. It's there. So I kind of like preloaded it and you know, like it was like just holding on by a thread at that point. And then later that night, um, cleaning up and I had to put away a chair in our storage. I grabbed the chair with both hands and I extend both of my elbows to place it in the storage room. And the moment I went into full extension, the sharp shooting pain right into that tendon. That's the moment when I injured myself. That's the moment, and, and I've, I've wrote about this in my book. To define an injury, the best way to describe it is when an external force comes within our tissue and the tissue yields. Meaning, force comes in, tissue's like, holy fuck, I'm not used to that kind of force, so now I'm broken, now I have torn, now I have, I have inflammation, whatever it is. And this is where kin stretch comes into play. If I can preload a tissue in different variable motions and movements, so now my body can adapt to that input and can adapt to that stress and that load. So when I you know, go out in the real world and pick up weird shit like that, then I'm more prepared. So now in my head, I'm like, man, I have not really worked my elbows in my kin stretch and elbows is one of those things that people end up hurting um, periodically. And it's one of those injuries that's so annoying because then that's when you realize like, fuck, I use my elbow for a lot of things. So that being said, I'm going to now incorporate a lot more elbow work. And when you, what my previous comment said, like think of the shoulder car, how many different positions that arm can go into and now adding an elbow car to it. Like if I'm back here in my kind of like abduction and um, what's that called? Extension of my shoulder. Now I can start adding my like elbow cars and just crank that out and maybe hold a tennis ball, cross ball, whatever to create, you know, some irradiation, some tension, some, some stability, some safety, right? Um, but Long story short, let's showcase how to utilize elbow cars. So I am standing. Hopefully the camera can see everything I'm doing. So my hands are gonna be out in an anatomical position. I want people to think of going into a bicep curl with both arms up. And my hands are in that karate chop position like we did um, with the shoulder car. Now that I'm at my end range of flexion, I'm gonna rotate, meaning I'm gonna do a pronation movement with my forearms, so now you can see the palm of my hands. From this position, I'm gonna go down, kind of like a reverse bicep curl going down. So now my forearms are facing you. From here, I'm gonna come back into flexion. I'm gonna go back into rotation, so I'm gonna go into supination and then I'm gonna come back down. So essentially we're just doing flexion and extension with pronation and um, 
supination. And here's the key though, I'm not just like flopping my forearms going back and forth. When we start, and say I'm back to our anatomical position, when I do that flexion, like curl thing, my thumbs, so if you can see in the video, my thumbs, I'm driving them forward as far as possible, like hard, like end range hard, right? So look at the difference. So this is like if I just did a normal curl, it's not going anywhere. But now if I really focus and try to drive, look at that extra little bit. And my forearms right now are on fire. And funny enough, like I can feel my brachioradialis uh, tendon, like it's like, hey, I'm there, right? So I'm constantly driving those thumbs. And then as I rotate, I don't know why I moved back, to um, pronation, same idea. Like I don't just stop here, I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm driving my thumbs forward as far as possible to get more, get more. And I always say that in my kin stretch class, get more. A lot of people kind of go into their end range and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm just gonna hang out. But I'm like, fucking get more. You can go get more. And I'm almost like thinking like if you took a towel and it's wet and you're trying to wring out that towel, like you're you're not just gonna like squeeze a little bit because you know there's a lot of water in there. So you're gonna crank that thing as hard as possible to get all the water out. Same idea with elbow cars. That's what I wanna see. So nice little demo, anatomical position, curl, rotate, down, back up, rotate back down and that would be one the key thing here with elbows people will get things like tennis elbow and golfer's elbow the way to remember it and i i think i, I got this when i went and got my tpi certification um the way to remember it is for most guys they have you know hair on their forearm and tennis elbow is always on the outside of their elbow because that's where a majority of all their hair is and the tennis ball has that kind of fuzzy covering on it. Whereas on the inside of your elbow, even with a guy that's super hairy, the inside of the elbow tends to be like hairless. Like there's literally like no, no hair on the inside of the elbow. So golfer's elbow because the golf ball is kind of smooth to touch right so tennis elbow fuzzy side golfer's elbow smooth side right super easy to remember um so those two tend to um flare up a lot on people and the funny thing is that a lot of people go treat that um area right off the bat but most of the time when it comes to injury, it's usually looking at the joint above, aka the shoulder, or the joint below the wrist. And we'll get to the wrist in a second, but people with limited shoulder mobility will tend to do stuff overhead, and I'm reaching overhead right now. Now imagine as I bring my arms up and I limit shoulder flexion, we talked about this before, I'm gonna arch my back to get more, and usually what happens is people will bend their elbows to kind of simulate more um, 
shoulder flexion. So now I have this like constant bend in my sh uh, elbow while doing things overhead. And a lot of times people will, um, you know, press overhead without a locked elbow because they know if they bend it, they can get a little further back. People trying to do chin-ups. This is where I see a lot of injuries to elbows when people don't have full range of motion at their shoulder joint, they will end up um, placing a lot of stress, usually on the medial side of the elbow, so they'll get golfer's elbow. Just because the shoulder doesn't move like a shoulder should, so now the elbow's taking up all the strain, right? That being said, when it comes to the elbow as well, the wrist, a lot of people have terrible wrist mobility and wrists, I always say, are often forgotten when it comes to training, movement, and just like human anatomy. So think about what you use in the gym probably the most. It's your wrists. So every time I grip, every time I do push-ups, every time I do mountain climbers, every time I do stupid burpees, every time I do anything like bench press, dumbbell rows, whatever it is, my wrists have to be mobile in order to do those things. But most of the time, people don't have enough wrist extension in order to do those things. So what happens if this wrist can't extend, where do you think most of the pressure is gonna now transfer to? It's gonna be the elbow, and that's usually you will see like tennis elbow stuff when people don't have enough wrist mobility. So, a lot of times when I teach wrist cars in my kin stretch class, nobody has an absolute clue or kinesthetic awareness to realize how to dissociate their wrist from their elbow. They end up utilizing movements of their wrist with their elbow and can't separate the two. And that does goes to show that when they're in the gym or what they do in everyday life, again, the elbow's taking the grunt work, right? So if we just focused on, hey, I'm gonna make my shoulder move better and I'm also gonna make my wrist move better so then I don't get elbow pain. In my case, I have good wrist mobility and shoulder mobility. What I did wrong that created that issue was I exceeded the load, that load capacity essentially, that my tendon in my form that, that, that it could take, right? Um, and this is another great example of how everyone's body's different, right? Like you can think like, oh, I hurt my thing between my shoulder blades because I did this. But in reality, it could just be like stress levels and your overall volume of training and everything else going on in life. Or you physically like popped a rib out because you did some snatch overhead and couldn't stabilize it, right? It's so individual. And that's why we need a thorough assessment, a thorough warm up, a thorough approach to everything. And this is why I think a lot of people kind of hit a plateau or kind of a wall in their training when they don't have something specific. In the very beginning, they'll see some sort of progress, but down the line, you know, things tend to fall apart. So that was a lot of talking. Let's showcase shoulder, um, not shoulder cars, wrist cars. So the way I coach it, if I was standing, my elbows are gonna be glued to my rib cage. 
my fingers are gonna be glued together. And again, karate chop position. What we're gonna do in this position, um, both hands, like my fingers are gonna reach down to the ground as far as possible. I'm gonna come into the middle and then open up towards the ceiling, out to the right and back, to, back down. And again, I'm gonna get a different view up, out to the side, and down. And kind of similar to my elbow cars, I'm going as far out into my outer ranges so I don't end up just like, oh, I'm just doing small circles. I'm like at my end range, right? And my forearms are fucking feeling it, like I'm working. And now I'm gonna go in the other direction, same thing. So one thing where everyone gets this wrong, is I tell people, your forearms are always pointing up towards the ceiling. Imagine your cell phone on your forearm, a glass of wine, whatever is really important to you that fits on your forearm, don't let it fall. And what happens is when people try to do this, because they don't have full control of their wrist or some sort of mobility limitation, they end up utilizing their forearms, like I was saying before. So a lot of times what happens is they go down, they go in, and like, oop, the elbows come off the rib cage because they don't have the range to go into this little movement here and they need their elbows to help and they end up doing this weird like rotation thing with their arms and I'm like, no, you guys like squeeze those elbows together. Don't let your forearm, and then people end up doing this thing and it's like some weird dance wizarding spell thing. And I'm like, no, you need the forearms not to rotate. That wrist needs to move freely in relation to that uh, forearm, right? So if you look at my forearm, barely moving, it's just my wrist. Like it literally looks like my forearm is kind of like dead while my wrist is moving. A lot of people have trouble with that. Wrists. People will get wrist pain because they don't have full mobility. Um, people will get wrist pain in bench pressing because again, they don't have full extension and now you're fucking loading it with a barbell with fucking 225, 135, whatever it is, right? So those wrists need to have full mobility to do stuff. The other thing too um, that you'll see, and I had this before on my left hand. I remember for the longest time when I would you know, kind of go too quick on my warm up, and I'm like, okay, I need to do push ups, and I go into my push up position. Sometimes I would have like sharp pain from the bottom of my wrist to like my last two fingers here, kind of like really fast, and then something I would, I would almost like strain the inside of my hand. And it wasn't until I took the FRC um, almost three years ago now, and when I checked my wrist extension my left hand was significantly a lot less. And I remember I'm like, oh shit, like that happens to me when I do push-ups. When I do bench press, that happens to me. I always get wrist pain. And it's because I didn't have an ex enough extension on my left side. And I'm like, I need to work on this, right? Um, sorry, my watch is just going off. Um, so with wrists, always forgotten. Make sure you have good control, good mobility for everything we do. Um, we're going to move on to the hips, so I'm going to have to like back up. So similar to the shoulder, the hips 
influence a lot of movement. If people have limited hip internal rotation and external rotation or any movement plane that the hip can go in, shit will fuck their, like their entire life. If you really think about it. not from an exercise standpoint, it will influence every fucking thing you do. So when I work with an individual and they have pain in their low back, guess what I'm looking for? Do you have hip internal rotation? Do you have hip external rotation? And can you control those two? Most of the time it's no. So it's like easy, give you hip, more hip mobility, boom, low back pain is gone. Again, science, right? Like crazy, groundbreaking. Who would have thought? You make a joint move really, really well and pain goes away, right? Um, so in all seriousness, if someone has limited hip mobility, it's going to cause a lot of issues and pain will follow. So hip cars is one of the things that I give to almost every single person. And just like the shoulder, there are ways to modify it if someone has pain and ways to, you know, deviate away from painful patterns and things like that. So again, think hip like your shoulder moves in so many different planes of motion and we got to find what works for you. But for the sake of this video, we are going to showcase a regular hip car, what to look for, what to train, and here we go. So I'm going to move back a little bit. Um, hopefully you can see me. In a standing position, it's always good to have, you know, hand on the wall, hand on your bench, whatever it is. The outside leg is going to be the working leg. What we're going to do is drive our knee into as much flexion as possible and like as high as possible. From here, you're going to go as wide as possible into abduction. From here, you're going to rotate that hip into internal rotation. This is literally the hardest thing to do. And from here, I'm gonna to try to go to extension around and behind until my right knee meets my left knee. Now I'm halfway. Now I'm gonna go back into extension, external rotation, open up to abduction, and then come into where I started. And sorry for the phone shaking because I have this plopped onto my bed and my dog is sleeping and she tends to twitch when she's uh, dreaming. Um, so that was the hip car. If you noticed, my entire body, other than my hip, did not move. When people have restrictions, this is what you're gonna see. One, they come up not as high as I did. Like, this is my full flexion. Or if they try to imitate me, they have to bend that bottom knee and that's all they get. From here, when people come out, they won't go all the way out like I did. And when I ask them for internal rotation, they bend over to get internal rotation. So what you're gonna have to do is go a little bit lower and go turn into internal rotation. And usually this motion going to internal rotation and kind of kicking around is where people lose all sense of direction, all sense of space and time. They have no idea what the fuck their hip is doing. And it's super awkward, super weird. And the person looks at me like, did I do it? Like what it is. So practice, 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 practice until it's like we groove the pattern. In the hip car, 
a lot of times. And this is another variation that I like to use is like you can have both hands on the wall to kind of get a little bit more feedback as you go through the motion, right? Um, and again, with the, say if I'm using my right hip, my left elbow, I wanna make sure the left elbow stays locked out the entire time. Um, just like the shoulder, a lot of people have hip pain. A lot of people get um, pinching, things like that. So when I have some really broken people, what we tend to do is break it up in half or in two parts. So a lot of times when I work with people that are in pain, have a lot of stuff going on, we just do this. We go into our flexion, we go into our abduction to external rotation, and then we close the door and back. And we literally just take that first little bit of the hip car just to move through it. As we progress, because I know that this transition of internal rotation is really, really, really difficult, then I will now kind of work the back piece. So it's like, okay, we got this going on. So now what we're gonna do is the last bit where I'm gonna stand, kick back, and try to open up into external rotation back. And I just eliminated this small little section of the transition. And then I can always work that transition um, in a supine position, just doing axial rotations, which is another thing that I could talk about forever, but we're already like close to 30 minutes on this thing and we haven't hit the knee ankle or toes so we're gonna move on uh, I'm gonna take you guys for a little ride onto the floor with me and hopefully it is bright enough for you to guys to see me yeah this is good actually yeah that's good okay knee cars the knee has the ability to go into external rotation, internal rotation, extension, and flexion. Very similar to the elbow if you think about it. The issue here is just like the wrists, when I get people to do knee cars in my kin stretch classes, people have no idea how to fuck to move their knee joint and they end up doing this weird ankle thing. So how to do knee cars is we're gonna have right knee bent, left leg straight out. Right hand goes through the right leg and then my left hand's gonna hold my right hand kind of like this, like I'm doing a you know solid handshake. And then I'm gonna pull my hip into flexion. So I'm gonna lock out my hip to prevent any influence from the hip to cheat. From here, because we're just working the knee joint, we've eliminated our hip, we also gotta eliminate our ankle. How do we do that? We throw our ankle into dorsiflexion. So I'm pointing my toes up towards my face. I tell people all the time, whatever you do in knee cars, never have your toes into plantar flexion. Never point them forward. Always have them pointing up towards your face the whole time. To start, I tell people, use your toes as a steering wheel. Turn that steering wheel to the right. And exactly at that moment, I'm turning my tibia, which is the bone in my shin, into external rotation. From there, I'm gonna extend my leg up as high as possible, so now I'm in uh, extension. Now I'm gonna turn that steering wheel of my toes 
in to the left, and now I'm in internal rotation, and I'm going to come back down in deflection. And then you repeat. You come right back to where you found it, out to the side, and back down. Now, when people do this, what I tend to see is they're good at externally rotating it, but then the moment I ask them for extension, they kind of like let go of the ankle, they start pointing, and they just start using their ankle for this while moving their knee into flexion extension, but that's not it. You want to lock out that ankle, so then you just have tibial rotation, both internal and external. When I see people limited in external and internal rotation of their tibia, and like literally in this video, pointing my toes up towards the ceiling and my heel is dug into the ground. If you look at where my fingers are pointing towards the camera, if I take my tibia to the right into external rotation, you see where my fingers are pointing at and you can see where my toes are. And now if I turn it in to internal rotation, you can see where my fingers are. So now this should move freely. Like look how much range I have. For the most part, people either don't know how to freely move their tibia, especially when it comes to, um, what's it called? Uh, any kind of running, squatting, lunging, whatever it is. If they're limited into internal and external rotation, the distribution of force through the leg is gonna be kind of all just stuck in this knee and then people will get things like shin splints, ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, low back pain. Having adequate tibial rotation allows you to disperse the force throughout the body evenly, so then you don't get any kind of pain. The biggest thing that influences our tibial rotation is every time we walk, every time we run, every time we sprint, every time we lunge, deadlift, squat. It's pretty important. Just like the wrists, knees are often forgotten. When I see uh, a difference between left and right, now I know that every time that person squats, lunges, or whatever, they have a favorite side that has more range of motion, or you know, the same side because that hip has more range of motion. And then we get all these weird asymmetries and pain and crap like that, and it all stems from the knees. Now, we're gonna move to the ankles. How that's gonna look? Same kind of position. Right knee bent, right hand through. This time, I'm gonna lift my hip up first. Left hand is gonna go on my right shin right hand on my left forearm. So I'm in a Kimura lock. So if you follow the UFC or any kind of jiu-jitsu, you know what a Kimura lock is. From here, I'm trying to move my ankle just like my wrist. I am drawing those big, 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 big circles, right? Really simple. I'm using my toes to lead the movement back and forth. And then you switch directions. So the issue that I see a lot is when people go and do the um, ankle car, they're really good at, you know, this position, plantar flexion and um, dorsiflexion, but the moment they deviate out to the side and inside, they almost get this like chunky, like almost 
orgasmic kind of feeling and then at the top they're like oh good and it's like and it's all good and then it's like almost jagged you know and all that tells me is that they have zero control when it comes to inversion and eversion of the ankle and that also tells me that when it comes to a situation where say you're taking a step off a sidewalk and because you're so good at um, dorsiflexion and plantar flexion back and forth to walk any kind of you know variable where maybe your ankle goes into inversion no control and boom now you have a rolled ankle right so being able to be efficient on both eversion ever uh, inversion and eversion of the ankle and having full control of that most likely when you're presented with any kind of variation uh, variable um you know surface when you're walking you'll be able to recover right um but i see a lot of times people just don't have full control um last thing we're going to do our toes so when it comes to actually going back to the ankles when i see a limitation of ankle mobility obviously things like squatting um, lunging any leg exercise any walking running or whatever it is similar to the knee it's going to have a huge influence when our ankles are limited in range of motion, it's going to affect us a lot. So pay attention to those small joints like the ankles, the knees, the wrists, everything. They play a huge, huge role. And they kind of support bigger joints that have more influence like our hips and shoulders. Um, so we're now we're gonna move on to the toes. So the reason why I place a huge emphasis on the toes is that toes, are probably the most forgotten joint because they are joints uh, out of everything in our body. The kicker here is that when it comes to toe mobility, everyone's terrible at it because we put socks on our feet and we wear shoes all freaking day. Our feet are exactly like our hands. If you look at the anatomy of our feet and, hand, and hands, very similar to a point where they almost have the same amount of bones. I believe the hands up going up to the wrist is a total of 27 bones, whereas our feet and up to the ankle, there are 26. So very, very, very similar in design. But the huge difference is that our feet don't get the proprioception or the variance of feeling like our hands do because they're always exposed. So what happens is our feet go into something called atrophy where we end up losing the strength of all the muscles, all the small intricate muscles responsible for our feet. So then people end up with flat feet, collapsed arches, bunions, like all this kind of weird shit that prevents us from doing what we do best as being human. So really simple, I'll show you four variations that I do in my kin stretch class. I tell, all right, I tell everyone, all right, when I tell you to lift, it's just going to be your big toe. So all the rest of the digits stay down onto the ground and then you just lift the big toe and then back down. You lift, and back down, lift, and back down. You would be surprised how many people can't do this. This simple little like just lift your big toe and place it back down. If this big toe 
does not move the way it's designed for sure is going to cause a lot of problems. If you think of any kind of propulsion or um, a way for your body to produce power, it comes from your big toe. That's your first point of contact onto the ground. But when people don't have full mobility or control of that, they're losing a lot on the table and who knows what their feet do when they're asked to run, right? Um, the other variation I tell people to do is the big toe stays down while the rest go up and then back down, up, back down, up, back down. Then from there, all toes come up, big toe only, and back up, big toe only, back up. From there, big toe stays up while the rest go down and down and up, down and up, down and up. Ideally, eventually what you should be able to do is one toe at a time coming up and down, right? Lots of lots of practice for this guy. So to kind of wrap things up, because we're getting pretty close here, um, toes often forgotten. When I do this in my kin stretch classes, you see all these people like looking down their toes and they're like, it's just not working. Or people will like start squeezing their hands or like they'll start pointing at their toes. Like they're like trying to command them to lift and come back down. And imagine if those people or even yourself who's watching, listening, whatever it is, get really good at this, how much that was gonna change if you decide to go for a run, if you decide to do step ups in the gym or push that sled, like having full control of those toes are going to make a difference, a huge difference. And it's also gonna go up the chain because now maybe your knees and ankles don't move that well, but now that you're moving your toes better, the ankles and knees don't have to take that much of the responsibility for whatever you're asking your body to do. Um, so that's gonna wrap it wrap it up for this episode because I've talked for 41 minutes and I could keep going, but we now have the entire morning routine from the neck down to the toes. If you did three repetitions of every single joint, it would take you less than 10 minutes. And this is kind of like the bare minimum I tell people to do is like, if you could do this every single day, 10 minutes, like literally that's all you needed to do your body will thank you. Your body will move better. It's going to groove better and you're gonna have less pain because you're constantly inputting to your nervous system that these joints have to move. Now this, as the joints move, you're improving its integrity by adding synovial fluid, lathering it with nutrients. This is why movement is medicine. The more you can move, the better you're going to feel. Like, that's it, that's it. Um, that's it for today. Um, if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out, um, hit the show notes, add me on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to watch this episode, if you're listening, um, hit the show notes and the link is going to be in there. A lot of great stuff that we went over. Like, I still think this episode was great for just listening because I spoke on a lot of personal experiences, what I see in my classes and things like that. Um, one of these days I need to do like a Facebook or Instagram live of uh, a kin stretch class on the weekend that you guys can follow along, but down the road. Anyway, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Hit the show notes.
like I said before, give me a five-star review. Subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't. That's it for me. Till next time, you guys.